Linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, this summer I seem to be a little later each week in getting these podcasts out, so I'll do my best uh, to get another one out yet this week. Uh, I've been wanting to hear the rest of that trilogue we started a few weeks back, and so I'll I'll try to get that thing out uh, in the next few days and uh, get back on a little better schedule again. And uh, talk about incentive to get back on schedule. All of a sudden, uh, we received a, a whole bunch of donations that uh, will certainly offset the next few months' expenses in producing these podcasts. The generosity of uh, these donors has uh, really blown me away. And uh, now I guess I'm starting to feel guilty about being so lazy this summer. So if I, I actually do get that trilogue out before next Sunday, uh, you'll also have the following people to thank. Andrew D., Stephen B., Vipal P., Janice O., John A., and MediaWell. And uh, that goes for me, too. Uh, Andrew, Stephen, Janice, John, MediaWell, and uh, longtime saloner and frequent donor, Vipal. I uh, thank you all for your wonderful generosity. And uh, now I guess I better get to work. Today we have a rare treat. Uh, at least it's a treat for us non-doctors. What I'm talking about is Grand Rounds. According to Wikipedia, the tradition of Grand Rounds began in the uh, 17th century and are a ritual of medical education, consisting of presenting the medical problems and treatment of a particular patient to an audience consisting of doctors, residents, and medical students. And uh, you know, Grand Rounds have uh, evolved considerably over the years, uh, with the most current sessions rarely having a patient present and uh, being more akin to lectures. At least that's what Wikipedia says, and uh, from what little I know about it, I think that's probably accurate. And uh, the doctor uh, delivering the Grand Rounds uh, lecture that uh, we're about to hear is our very own Dr. Preet Chopra. Back in uh, April of 2007, I podcast the talk that Preet gave at our 2006 Palenque Norte Lectures at the Burning Man Festival, so you longtime listeners already know him. But for our newcomers to the salon, I'll, uh, I'll give you some more background on Dr. Chopra. To begin with, uh, he's one of a very small number of psychiatrists in the U.S. who have uh, even ever worked on a government-approved study in which humans uh, have used psychedelic medicines. And in his generation, uh, I believe he's definitely one of the leading psychedelic researchers. Now, in the interest of maintaining the confidentiality of this grand round, I've uh, removed all personal details about particular participants and about the uh, Northern California Hospital where this lecture was given. I guess I should also uh, give full disclosure here. Uh, my wife was Dr. Grobe's original research assistant on the uh, study Preet talks about, and I can still remember her talking about him after their first meeting. Uh, you know, if you know any nurses, then you probably also know that they don't always have the highest opinions of doctors. But uh, that certainly wasn't the case with Charlie. Uh, my wife had known him for several years before the study began, and she held him in the highest regard. But uh, one summer day in 2003, she came home from work and said uh, Charlie was bringing a young resident psychiatrist on board for the study and that he would be there the next day. 
Well, needless to say, this uh, caused a little anxiety around our house that night, uh, wondering what this new team member would be like. Uh, well, <laughs> you can only imagine our happiness that evening when my wife came home and said, Guess what? He's a burner. Not only that, he even got married at Burning Man. <laughs> now, if you've ever been to Burning Man, you know that there really isn't anything more to say about someone than that. He was family right away, and uh, my wife and I have been good friends with uh, Preet and Eva ever since. And now I'm uh, really grateful to Preet for letting me podcast him conducting grand rounds about psychedelic psychotherapy. Why don't we get going? So I'm going to talk about psychedelic psychotherapy today. I'm going to talk about the characteristics of the psychedelic experience, kind of a way to think about it phenomenologically. Um, to help in its description and talk about how psychedelics can be utilized safely really for therapeutic benefit and to avoid um, the classic bad trips, the kind of psychological adverse events. I'm going to specifically talk about psilocybin since I have experience using that in a clinical trial at Harvard UCLA and there's been two other studies uh, completed with psilocybin and yeah, get into our study. So uh, when it comes to characterizing the experience, uh, I think it's important to remember that psychedelics do not produce a specific um, drug-induced state. And this was well described by Stan Groff, who did a lot of the early work with psychedelics um, in the 50s and 60s in, in, uh, in Maryland. Um, rather, we must consider the sort of extra-pharmacological influence, uh, such as understanding the effects of the drug, purpose ingestion, the preparation, and environmental and interpersonal elements. So these sort of ideas led to, led to the development of this very important concept with psychedelics known as set and setting. These were originally described by Timothy Leary and his colleagues at, at Harvard um, when they were using uh, LSD uh, in some research. So set is really talking about what the individual who ingests a psychedelic brings to the table in terms of their, their life experience, their mood, expectations, um, family history, their personality structure, significant relationships and their systems of belief. Setting uh, really accounts for all the other factors that are kind of not internal to the person. Um, the physical environment, location, all sorts of sensory stimuli that might be present during uh, intoxication, and the other participants, particularly a therapist or a, a facilitator. Walter Pankey um, is an important figure in psychedelic research. He was a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and minister who wrote a PhD thesis at Harvard Divinity School about the psychedelic experience. Um, and through his research, he basically defined five distinct um, experiences. Now, these experiences really shouldn't be thought of as separate occurrences with each individual. Any experience can have aspects of all of these. But they, he kind of classically divided these into these five um, experiences. And again, this was not dose-related. Um, he and others related. This was really most related to the set and the setting of the individual during the use of of, of the substance. So the psychotic experience is kind of the, the classic bad trip. Um, this is like an intense fear to the point of panic, paranoia, delusions, really loss of a sense of self and often a lot of kind of physical discomfort. Um, for a time um, in the 60s there was a psycho, psychotomimetic paradigm um, where psychiatrists and uh, other researchers thought that they could model schizophrenia um, with, a, with a substance-induced psychosis using LSD, um, psilocybin, DMT, PCP. However, this was abandoned because it really didn't fit that model. Um, and not, not everybody becomes psychotic, and actually most people don't. So, but that kind of was an interesting bit of history. Now, the psychodynamic experience 
um, is really about the emergence of unconscious material into the consciousness that can later be uh, integrated through depth psychotherapy. So this was practiced by um, depth psychotherapists, um, mainly in Europe, a little bit um, in the United States, again in the 50s and the 60s. And the model of psycholytic therapy was uh, low-dose low dose psychedelics over multiple sessions. And this was integrated through um, depth, depth psychotherapy. Another class is the uh, cognitive psychedelic experience, which is really characterized by this amazing, astonishing lucid thought, where um, maybe a problem or some sort of project can be seen from, from a new perspective. Um, or, you know, inner relationships can be um, re-examined. You know, two kind of notable maybe uh, examples of this. The first is Kerry Mullis, who developed PCR. <coughs> he publicly publicly acknowledged um, in his kind of uh, interesting autobiography that he used LSD when kind of contemplating how to uh, develop a technology for the research he was pursuing. And another person who who spoke but not publicly about um, using um, LSD was Francis Crick, who, according to many sources. Um, was using LSD when he was contemplating the structure of, uh, of DNA. Now, I know somebody who's writing a book about the history of psychedelics who recently, um, or at one point, interviewed Watson, who will not admit to Crick uh, saying that. So, um, The aesthetic experience is probably what most recreational users are going for. Um, this is you know, when, uh, some of the well-known phenomena of the psych psychedelic intoxication. So it's synesthesia, uh, visions of beautiful colors, intricate geometric patterns, forms, architectural patterns. So this is really kind of, you know, an aesthetic experience. Um, and um, a term that's that's out there among kind of recreational psychedelic users is psychonaut, which really means Greek sailor of the mind. And I think this is kind of the experience that those folks are going for. Now what I'm most interested in my research and what many researchers have been interested in, again recently is the what Panky called the mystical experience, what might be called the peak psychedelic experience, the transcendental experience, the cosmic experience. And in his, in his um, PhD thesis, he argued that this experience was identical to um, the kind of mystical experience described in all the major uh, religions of the world. Um, and he felt that, that there were nine universal qualities of both a psychedelic mystical experience or uh, one of the more ecstatic uh, um, religion uh, religious mystical experiences, that these are really identical. So these nine universal qualities of the mystical or peak psychedelic experience are a sense of unity of, of oneness, there's a transcendence of time and space, deeply felt positive mood, a sense of sacredness, there's a noetic quality, um, meaning that there's some sort of insight gained from this process. There's paradoxicality, where logical contradi contra contradictions um, become apparent if descriptions are strictly analyzed. Um, ineffability, really an inability to really put to words uh, what this experience means. Transiency, and a persisting positive change in attitudes or behavior. Now, if those of you familiar with Abraham Maslow um, and his book, Toward a Psychology of Being, these nine universal qualities are very similar to the uh, characteristics he described more common um, as occurring more commonly among self-actualized people when he would study you know, the great NFL player at the moment when um, you know, they scored their first touchdown or a nursing mother um, during that kind of period of joy connecting with their infant. So this has been, these kind of qualities have been described and, stu and studied in other areas of psychology. Oh, so just kind of looking at this, I was trying to find some sort of cross-cultural evidence, and we'll, I'll give you a lot more of that later. But it's interesting, there's one study recently in the journal of Psychoactive Drugs, which 
you know, looked at psychedelic users versus non-psychedelic drug users versus social drinkers in two sites, Australia and Israel. Again, this is not indigenous use of plant medicine. And they, um, users of psychedelics scored higher on mystical beliefs, life values, and spirituality, and concern for others than the other groups. And also in 2006, this is an article in Psychopharmacology, um, and it, Roland Griffiths and his team at uh, John Hopkins University did a study with psychedelic naive um, individuals trying to see if they could induce a mystical experience um, in healthy volunteers. And um, it's a very, very, it's a great paper to read, but uh, uh, 22 out of the 36 individuals in the U.S. had a mystical experience in psilocybin. And in fact, two-thirds of those participants, again, who had never used psychedelic drugs, um, endorsed it as being among the top five most important experiences of their life. And one, I believe it was one-third, said it was the most powerful transcendent experience they'd ever had in their life. Um, so, you know, the, the idea of this peak, psych this peak psychedelic uh, experience brings us to the concept of psychedelic psychotherapy, which was known as the psychedelic method, practiced in the United States. A lot of research was done. About 40,000 patients were treated across the U.S. and Canada during that time. And the idea w with this was that the peak psychedelic experience should be the focus because they found that this had the most dramatic um, effect in terms of taking care of fear, anxiety, depression, and pain. And they also felt when people were able to integrate these experiences either through um, um, spiritual work or other kinds of therapeutic work, this really can leave a long-lasting effect after just one kind of treatment um, with a psychedelic if there was a mystical experience. So um, a lot of people have written about how do we, how do we, you know, set and setting are the most important factors to uh, that uh, influence the psychedelic experience. How do we manipulate those <coughs> to best kind of um, um, to best go for a therapeutic benefit? So Myron Stolaroff is a um, is a veteran psychedelic researcher who ran psychedelic research lab in Palo Alto in the 50s and 60s, and um, he writes that set is the most important and the key characteristics of having kind of a mystical experience. Um, and a powerful psychedelic experience, a really honesty to be seeking knowledge, appreciate life in all its forms, and have some sort of ongoing spiritual discipline to help really integrate um, the experience. Um, now, in terms of the setting, he felt that the facilitator or the sitter is the most important aspect of the setting. And it's really important for the, the, uh, the facilitator to be supportive, reassuring, and nourishing to the individual and maintain a safe and beautiful environment um, for the uh, experience. Now, a concept of the facilitator is really the person who kind of leads somebody during a psychedelic experience. Now, this can be an individual or a team, so there must be a therapeutic alliance and a relationship um, with, the, uh, with, the, with the person. Um, and this person is someone who remains sober and really is there only to provide gentle redirection when needed. Um, because as we'll get to in a minute, psychedelics are generally very well tolerated um, in appropriate settings. Um, you know, this is something about yeah, it's important for the facilitator to become familiar with the substance because um, there are a variety of, of somatic side effects with some psychedelics, so it's really important to know what those are. So the sitter can provide um, kind of gentle reassurance to an individual um, and also to know if there's some sort of un un irregular side effect. Right, so when talking about psychedelic safety, psychedelics really are well tolerated um, in healthy folks who aren't taking prescription medications and who don't have any undiagnosed um, conditions. In a recent study in Lancet, um, Nutt and colleagues looked at the abuse potential of 20 different drugs weighed on a variety of characteristics. 
And the, the, the only two psychedelic drugs that they looked at, LSD and MDMA, which is kind of an atypical psychedelic, they ranked very relatively low, 14th and 17th out of 20, versus alcohol and tobacco ranked high, 5th and 9th. You know, some of the psychostimulants and narcotics mm -hmm. were among the, uh, the most dangerous um, in that review. So the most common psych psychological adverse effects really are kind of mild psychosomatic discomfort, a little nausea, stomach tightening, um, maybe a little um, dizziness. Um, there can be extreme anxiety and it can go on to paranoia kind of in a predisposed individual in a, a sub-ideal setting. Um, there has been a, an association with acute psychotic episodes and uh, psychedelics. You know, most people feel this is a triggering or an uncovering maybe of a first presentation of a major mental illness, such as a psychotic or manic episode. There certainly will be, you know, one-time psychotic episodes as well. There also is a concept in the transpersonal literature about the spiritual emergency. Uh, I've read several case reports of folks who had a, a spiritual emergency after a psychedelic experience that they were la later able to, to contextualize through spiritual work. Um, some of those folks required antipsychotics for a period, others didn't. But it really didn't lead to a, a lifelong, um, you know, debilitating psychotic illness. And there really is no absolute method of, of predicting this, obviously, since we don't have that much research about this. Um, in terms of reducing risk, I certainly feel anybody with certain medical contradic contraindications and taking prescription drugs should really avoid taking a psychedelic. Probably if you have a personal history of a major mood disorder or thought disturbance, particularly bipolar or schizophrenia, I think that should be avoided. There may even be a case for someone with a very strong family history of, of bipolar or psychotic disorder to be very, very cautious when using um, psychedelics. And certainly anyone receiving treatment um, you know, for, a, for an Axis I disorder really should think twice about using these kind of agents because they really are pretty um, powerful. Now there's a couple exceptions to that. I just wanted to share with you some of the other studies that are out there. Um, there was a pilot study with psilocybin for OCD completed at the University of Arizona, I believe in 2005, which showed really, really good results after one dose of psilocybin. Some interesting history behind that. Um, the, uh, the PI of that study, he's an OCD specialist, and he just heard several reports of his patients who would, um, you know, go visit kind of mestizo um, healers and have mushroom sessions, and sometimes their OCD symptoms would uh, would, would remit for three, four, five months, and that's what gave him this idea to look into it, and they had some good results. There's currently an MDMA study for PTSD at um, University of South Carolina in Charleston. I believe they're treating their last two subjects right now, and then after six months, that'll be published. Um, they've actually treated um, two Gulf, uh, two uh, um, U.S. Army veterans as well with PTSD. Um, there's our study with psilocybin for anxiety associated with terminal cancer. There's also um, the same group that did that, that study on mysticism at Johns Hopkins now has approval for treating 40 patients with psilocybin um, for um, any stage of cancer at a higher dose, but they haven't been able to recruit anybody yet. And I believe there is an MDMA study for anxiety related to cancer in approval at Harvard that is uh, now being uh, begun. Okay, just really briefly regarding bad trips, I get a lot of questions about that. so. Um, Stan Groff has a really good chapter about this in LSD psychotherapy. Um, basically, he feels that they're generally time-limited and they resolve on their own. <clears throat> he looks at the phenomena that kind of comes up in these experiences latent in a person's psyche. So really, um, he feels it's important to allow the person to go through the process, remain grounded, and not to kind of curtail the uh, experience abruptly, either by, you know, kind of talking intervention or um, a psychotropic, and that later that material can be integrated. Um, 
Houston Smith is a pretty um, well-known religious uh, scholar. He's written a book about psychedelics called Cleansing the Door of Perceptions. Doors of Perception. He was involved in a in a study while he was a student at Harvard Divinity School, uh, given psilocybin during the Good Friday experience. So he has a pretty lifelong perspective on psychedelics. And he has written that maybe some of the most dramatic and challenging experiences uh, provide the most potential for growth when they're worked through in a you know in, a, in an uh, appropriate manner. Why avoid tranquilizing? Well, the idea is there's a process that's going on involving unconscious material coming to consciousness. So don't abrupt that softly. I think he uh, he really recommends you know using you know physical to physically restrain someone, hold them down when needed, allow them to work through it, and if absolutely needed, maybe a benzodiazepine. But the idea you don't want to just curtail that right there. He feels that actually leads to kind of more psychological trauma, um, not letting that process kind of finish. Okay, so now we're going to talk about psilocybin. We'll do a little bit about the ethnobotany of psilocybin. Um, so psilocybin is an alkaloid coming from uh, what are really commonly known as magic mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms, um, from this genus psilocybe. And th this is the most important kind of group of mushrooms used by um, Mexican healers. And they were also used in Guatemala. And this map kind of shows where they just occur across the world. Um, you know, when we talk about psychoactive plants, there's evidence going back about 7,000 years of humans using um, plant medicines um, kind of in, in healing and also for kind of religious use. This is a, a, a kind of a, a scratching of a cave in, um, I believe, in south of France. If you can see in this depiction, it's a shaman who's kind of dressed like a bee, and there's all these mushroom appendages. And they found that um, in some of these older societies, you know, mushrooms when collected can't stay forever. They would actually store them in honey. So this is, um, and there were, you know, honey, honey, you know, honey pots found with uh, remnants of psilocybin mushrooms in some of these kind of older uh, societies. So they're really found in most parts of the world, really in kind of more disturbed areas. And I mean disturbed areas by humans. Um, as humans domesticated cattle, th this would disturb different areas. It would change the kind of flora and fauna. And um, as many people might know, a lot of mushrooms grow in cow dung, particularly psilocybin mushrooms. It's, it's really their ideal place to grow. So um, ironically, as you know, Matt has settled the world, you know, mushrooms have kind of come with him. Um, there's about a hundred species that produce psilocybin, which um, produces a very kind of typical psychedelic effect. So this was not um, unnoticed by the, uh, the Spaniards when they came to Central America. Um, the Florentine Codex is, is kind of this interesting collection of writings by this uh, kind of uh, member of the Inquisition, I believe, just kind of just writing descriptions of, of what was going on in the New World. And what he noticed was, and when the effects of the mushrooms had left them, they consulted among themselves and told one another what they had seen in vision. So even in kind of the, um, the Inquisition's literature about this, it really shows kind of a sacramental or a ceremonial or kind of a psychological use of the mushroom. And uh, in, in 1616, um, you know, the Inquisition really got involved and really uh, ordered really the killing of all users of these plant medicines. Anyone using herbs and roots, with which they lose and confound their senses and the illusions and fantastic representations, representations they have, judge and proclaim afterwards as revelation or true notice of things to come. And um, here's another quote from an, actually an inquisitor um, talking about what these mushrooms did. Um, 
which when drunk deprive of the senses because it is very powerful and by this means they communicate with the devil because he talks to them when they are deprived of judgment and the said drink and deceives them with different hallucinations and they attribute it to a god they say is inside the seed. So this really was noticed um, you know, by the Inquisition. Um, just a little bit of history to get you to now. Um, there was a, during the 20th century, there was an argument in the anthropological literature whether these things were mushrooms or not. There were some folks until, you know, mushrooms were rediscovered in the 50s, you know, by the West, that really the Spaniards are incorrect that they, actually these, um, these areas in Guatemala and Mexico were actually using peyote, which was well understood and, uh, and ca categorized. So for many years, really, in the West, we knew nothing about um, psychedelic mushrooms. Then there was a, a famous investment banker named Gordon Wasson who married a Russian aristocrat. And um, for their honeymoon, they went back to Russia and spent some time out in the country. And one of, one of the mornings there, his wife went out and picked some, some wild mushrooms and cooked them, you know, for a breakfast. And first, Wasson was very scared of the mushrooms because, you know, being from the West, were very um, mycophobic. But his wife insisted that they were safe and healthy, so he ate it, and he really liked the mushrooms. Now, these weren't psychedelic mushrooms, just really nice-tasting kind of wild mushrooms. So after that, he became fascinated with mushrooms and became an amateur mycologist. And this is a man of, you know, <coughs> extreme resources. So he got wind of the use of mushrooms in a, in a, in a cult um, in North Mexico and managed to go down there and actually meet a woman named Maria Sabina, who's a famous um, mestizo curandera of the Mazatec tribe. And he actually was invited to a mushroom ceremony, and he brought Time Life um, photographers with him. And he documented all this um, in a pretty interesting kind of Time Life magazine article. I didn't keep the clip in here. But, um, and that's kind of how Timothy Leary first heard about um, mushrooms, um, was reading that Time Life magazine. I think it was from 1950 or 1951. Um, and then it actually took some time. In the U.S., there wasn't a chemist who was able to extract anything that was psychoactive out of a mushroom. They tried all the best U.S. chemists. So then they sent it off to Europe to all the labs there, and it was Albert Hoffman, who um, is the uh, discoverer of LSD, who was able to um, extract psilocybin from mushrooms. So and that's how we get it today. So for our study, psilocybin is made in a research lab in Massachusetts. It's not coming from a mushroom. It's a synthetic version. Okay, so this is a little bit about the chemistry of psilocybin. It's in the tryptamine family. If you take a look at it, it look, looks an awful lot like serotonin. Um, it's phosphoroxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine. Um, it's active at you know 5H2A and 2C receptors. Medium dose, about 12 to 20 milligrams, produces a well-controlled altered state of consciousness. I think getting higher 20, 30 really is a really profound dose. Generally, at this medium dose, this is kind of what we're using in our study, the effect lasts for about four to six hours. Um, the state, you know, there's stimulation of affect, enhanced ability for introspection, induction of primary psychological processes, similar to a dream in hypnagogic state, and some perceptual changes. This is just a list of some psilocybin species <coughs> and their relative percentages of psilocybin, psilocin, and baocysteine. So psilocin and baocysteine are two other um, um, psychoactive uh, compounds that are available out of mushrooms. So talking about toxicity, you know, mice can survive 200 milligrams per kilogram, which is a lot. And the ED50 to LD50 ratio, the ED is your effective dose, the LD is your lethal dose. 
is extremely high for psilocybin, 641, um, versus aspirin and nicotine. So now I'll tell you a little bit about um, the trial we're doing down at Harvey UCLA. So we originally um, approved to treat 12 subjects with advanced cancer. Um, unfortunately, two of our subjects um, passed away before finishing the uh, six-month follow-up um, work, so we petitioned the FDA and they allowed us to recruit in one more. So we're going to treat 13 patients. We've treated 11 so far. We're doing the first session of our 12th patient this weekend, and I, am, I may be consenting a 13th patient tomorrow, um, hopefully. Our um, subjects for this trial can have any CNS involvement, no cardiac disease, and no history of major mental illness. And we can, we're approved for adults up to age 70. The study is really looking at the effect on anxiety associated with an advanced cancer diagnosis, and we're also looking at the pain. This is an experimental treatment. You know, there is no FDA approval for psilocybin um, right now. It's a double-blind placebo-controlled methodology. Um, each subject serves as their own control. So they're admitted twice for the research protocol. One time they're given niacin, the other time they're given psilocybin. Um, the psilocybin is kept in a safe um, in the basement of the hospital, and only the research pharmacist has access to that. So she produces um, a capsule on the morning of the, uh, of the session for each, uh, each session. So in terms of, we do a lot of pre preparation uh, with, with our subjects before the actual treatment, uh, make sure they meet the team. You know, we really serve as the sitters, the facilitators. All, you know, my, myself, Charlie Grove was the PI and our research coordinator, and that was Alicia Danforth, our, our bedside with the subject, the entire experience. We want to help them uh, think and contemplate their intention or motivation of entering the study. I didn't put this on our earlier slide, but there's a lot written about intention going into a psychedelic experience. It can kind of set the trajectory of the experience. It's a way to kind of work with set a little bit to help um, uh, to help have an experience that might be more beneficial to an individual. And we really want them to learn as much as they can about uh, psychedelic therapy. Now, a lot of people ask me, are these folks who are have had psychedelics before, or are these all um, naive folks who come to our study? You know, it's really been a mixture. You know, we don't have a rule out for having past experiences with psychedelics, um, though we have treated some people who have had psychedelic experiences, some maybe, you know, once or twice in the 60s, some more recently, and some never. So the setting, so um, there's a designated GCRC down at Harbor UCLA. Um, luckily, it's a double door room with extra sound insulation because this room used was, was kind of retrofitted for a sleep study that was done in the past. So we tried to deinstitutionalize it a little bit. This is how, <laughs> how Alicia kind of decorates the room and things like that, you know. Um, we encourage people to bring in personal objects and, and photographs, which they do, so really kind of customize it. Um, you know, try to make it less hospital setting. Um, this is the participant's point of view, a shot by one of our participants. So I think that's kind of a nice shot. <laughs> so during the actual session, you know, after you know, we uh, we encourage patients to really go deeply within and, and really um, enter the experience. Um, we provide them with eye shades, which um, and noise canceling earphones. We have pre-selected music um, that they listen to. Now we do have to check in once each hour to check a blood pressure and a pulse, and at four hours there's one pain measure that we have to do. But the idea is really to allow them to go deep into their own process. You select the music or that music? We select the music. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we, we, it's, it's not pre-selected across, standardized across all the boards, but you know, we found certain music is, is helpful to kind of get into a relaxed 
you know, kind of state. Now, there have been folks, and one person in particular, who had some experience with psychedelics, had some strong ideas about what she wanted to listen to. So we just had those CDs and incorporated them some. I think there's some benefit not having it, having music actually that they'd never heard, particularly instrumental music, or if there are lyrics in another language, just to allow make it as abstract as possible. So um, there's a lot written about music in, in psychedelics. I can see Susanna Bustos just walked in. She did a great thesis on the use of uh, music um, uh, with ayahuasca. So it's it's really an important area to look at. We're not in this study, but it's a huge, hugely important <coughs> influence on the set setting. <coughs> yeah, some tribal, some instrumental, you know. So um, you know, kind of world music. There can be lyrics if it's not in a language that's known to the participant. So generally, if it's not English, we'll use some of that. Because yeah. I think human voice can be very powerful too for compelling someone. Um, you know, one of the classics we use is the, the soundtrack from the mission. You guys familiar with that that movie and that sounds it's really I mean it's a beautiful soundtrack. So all right, so this is uh, one of our participants who remarked um, it was kind of remarkable how this weird music I would never normally listen to became a part of my trip. So she was very reluctant to um, during her placebo session, you know, sometimes it's fairly apparent when it's placebo, she started really complaining, you know, about the music, but we, we stuck with it. She's like, I don't like this, these are my preferences. But interestingly enough, when she had her, what we assume is the, you know, the active session, she was just blown away by the music in terms of where it took her and things like that. So that's why I include that quote. So at the conclusion of the session, you know, generally about after five, five, four or five hours, you know, we do some integration. We, we ask um, folks to invite their family in and, you know, get them together. And then this is kind of a list of some of the study measures. So, um, you know, one is a profile of mood states, which is one day before, six days after, and then monthly for six months. There's an anxiety inventory, the Beck depression scale, symptom distress. This, um, 5D ASC, that's the five-dimensional altered states of consciousness. It's translated from German. It looks at kind of, you know, at six hours, was the person's consciousness altered or not? Um, and then the brief psychiatric rating scale, which is really to look at kind of any kind of psychosis or anything that would emerge from this. Um, and there's some pain, in, there's some pain scales um, as well. Um, yeah, speaking of pain, you know, most folks that we've kind of... Um, screened who have significant pain have opted not to go into the study because it requires going off um, you know, um, narcotic analgesics for the study. That really would blunt the psychedelic ex experience. So that's going to be a measure that we're really not going to get that much information about. Because really most of our folks don't have significant pain. Because also they're able to come in you know, into the hospital, spend a night um, at this stage of their life. So. Um, yeah, so it's a little early for any data analysis, but hopefully that'll be coming soon. Every participant has described it as beneficial, um, just just to us. And let's see, since I have some time, I'll throw you a couple of other quotes from some participants. Um, I've always felt my mind was altered enough having OCD that I didn't need to stretch it out to see what else might come out. I had heard that psilocybin might relieve my OCD symptoms, so I decided to try it. So this is a very interesting participant because she is somebody who had contacted um, Francisco, Francisco Moreno at University of Arizona about the OCD and psilocybin study. Um, and she was d disqualified from that study because she had end-stage cancer. So he was, sh she was referred to us, and I did the screening with her, and she did not meet criteria for OCD, <coughs> according to any structured interview. We do a 
we do a skid for that. You know, she, so we, we could bring her in. Um, so, and OCD technically wasn't a, uh, one of our absolute contraindications. So that was very, really kind of interesting. So she found it really, really beneficial. Also, she, is, she was a psychedelic, actually a pretty much drug-naive individual, so, which was kind of interesting. Okay, I was comfortable, not afraid, and in touch with something that made me happy. I would very much like to repeat the study and compare experiences. <laughs> okay, so those are, those are also comments by that, that subject. Now, this is another subject. Um, my first perception of the psilocybin's effects was a feeling of being supported by many hands. I thought about my relationships with my husband, members of my family, and my Buddhist teachers. During a bathroom break, I saw myself in the mirror and started to cry, grieving the effect of two rounds of chemotherapy, the loss of my long curly hair and my relatively youthful appearance. I saw the cancer as part of my spiritual path. Prior to the psilocybin session, I had been plagued by obsessive thoughts that I would suffer horribly while going through the dying process. Death would not be the end of my life, just a transition. Throughout the session, I felt a strong sense of spiritual presence of the connectedness of all things and that everything is perfect just the way it is. Realistically, no type of treatment could completely eliminate the fears associated with having a terminal illness, but when I am able to tap into the memory of that blissful state it is of great comfort to me. So that subject um, was someone who was, you know, kind of raised with a Judeo-Christian background, but had adopted kind of uh, Buddhism, mindfulness practices, meditation, probably um, for the last 25 years. And though she, I, I think, felt she could, she benefited a lot in her life from a lot of those concepts. It was really difficult to actually put that experience into effect when it came to this diagnosis of cancer. And um, in her kind of life story, she was really hoping to be able to make it through to the. Um, the marriage of her son, which she has, and um, so those are kind of the kind of personal issues she was grap grappling with. But she really, she really felt a connection to kind of her own adopted spirituality, more of the kind of transcendental karmic spirituality through this process, which was a really uh, kind of a gratifying thing for all of us to kind of work with her around. So I'd like just like to acknowledge all the volunteers, um, our 11 subjects who've uh, been so generous with their time, with so little bit left to come to the study. Charles Grove for putting the study together. Mary C. Haggerty was our first research coordinator um, for about the first two years of the study. We've been doing this since 2004. And Alicia Danforth is our current um, research coordinator. And for some more information, you can get information about the study at clinicaltrials.gov. There's also a, a, a website for the study. And this website, Matrix Masters, has a couple of talks by Charlie Grove, I think one by Alicia, another one by me, about the study. And there's also, I think, a testimonial from a patient on there. So thanks for listening so intently, and we have some time for questions. I just wanted to ask you if you have ever heard of uh, a Mexican psychiatrist named Salvador Rocat. So the real question is, hey, have I heard about a, a Mexican psychiatrist named Dr. Roquette, um, yet, who worked with psychedelics uh, in Mexico, I believe in the 60s and 70s? Yeah. yeah, so I have heard about him, not much. It's interesting, um, that quote from Houston Smith is from an article when he writes about his experience with Dr. Roquette in Mexico, where he felt um, the whole... The, set, the setting was to set up this incredible destruction of the self and then 
have this gentle rebuilding of it during this process. Um, so that's my, that's all I know about it, but I've heard a lot of things about it. All right, so the question is about what kind of spirituality did our subjects endorse? And did we screen for that? So we didn't screen for that. I mean, I, I kind of assume everybody has a spirituality. So when I include that in, in the set, I, I include that as some sort of maybe system of belief or experiences, either chosen personally or kind of adopted from parents, that someone kind of emulates and that kind of affects their experience with things. Um, so it, with that in mind, I mean, we've treated people who, are, who um, you know, um, define themselves as Jewish, as Buddhist, as Catholic, as agnostic, um, people would switch back and forth. I'd say it's fairly wide range. Um, you know, comes in naturally to this kind of work, uh, working kind of with end-stage cancer folks, regardless of the power of a psychedelic experience. So, I mean, spirituality is on the table. Everybody's, you know, we're wrestling kind of with the big questions. You know, what does this mean? I think you were that same. Yeah, I missed the first part of this. You yeah. said at the end that all 11, 11 clients, they all reported benefit. <coughs> what were the parameters used to measure? Yeah, so we have, we don't haven't done any we haven't done any data analysis yet. I'm just their subjective report after coming in. No one said, hey, this was a really bad experience. There's been no adverse effects. Everybody felt they would do it again. They said it was beneficial. Generally, they felt more relaxed, less anxious. So you there know, was no anxiety pre-tests. There, there, we have anxiety measures beforehand and afterward. We haven't completed the study yet, so we haven't analyzed that data yet. So, okay, I'm yeah. wondering, were these were all psilocybin-naive subjects? No, some were. Some weren't. I don't believe anybody had actually ever taken psilocybin. I know, I can remember at least one or two of the subjects had tried mushrooms at some point in their life. seems a lot gentler when using LSD. Yeah, I think I think psilocybin is a much better choice with end-stage cancer folks because it's a shorter duration of duration of effect. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I used to in college. I was on a team that would talk people down from bad trips. Oh, right. right. And uh, never had to talk anybody down from psilocybin. Mescaline sometimes, mm -hmm. mostly from the bomb. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, definitely else. Well, you could have given the first part of my talk then. <laughs> <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I just wanted to ask a little bit two-part question. One was uh, if you know anything about, I just know a little bit about the uh, the, the history or at least rumors that there were government uh, studies where people were not consented uh, with hallucinogenic uh, research. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it, of my question, has to do with regardless of whether they're naive or not, it's your responsibility to instruct them about what they may expect. I, I understand that ethically. But I also I also question I, I'm just curious how do you how do you handle the their expectation, regardless of whether they're they're naive or not to hallucinogenic drugs, their expectation that they are going to have a spiritual experience, that they may experience synesthesia uh, or any of these things. How how does one one handle that? Because it seems like niacin would not be uh, <laughs> Would not would not control for mm -hmm. for that adequately. I'm just curious. Those two those, those are my two questions. So the first question about you know giving where did the government give people psychedelics without telling them they were on psychedelics? 
Now, I have no way of knowing that, or yes or not, you know, because I don't have that information, but I have heard that rumor. I do know that there was um, an internist named Eric Cast, who was a, a pain specialist, who treated patients with really bad pain with LSD, you know, basically just giving them an injection and coming back later to see if the, the pain was better, and he actually published really good results. So I do know there was a, a time in research when psychedelics were administered without really understanding um, what was going on. That was in the very, very early days that happened, so I wouldn't be surprised. Now, the second question, remind me again, so I can answer. It was about the placebo. Okay. You joked about, yeah, about how, to, how, do you, so preparing how do you control for that expectation. Yeah, I think what we've learned in this process is that niacin is not an effective placebo against psilocybin, okay? Um, it just, it's, it's so obvious when someone's not on, not on psilocybin or on niacin, almost. There's probably, there was two individuals, we don't know which was the psilocybin because they must have had relatively kind of mild effects. But both of their sessions, they felt kind of the emergence of some material, ability to get some perspective, and kind of some comfort after spending the time with us, you know? The other thing we're not controlling for is the effect of, you know, doing a five, six-hour session, you know, two therapists and a very another very therapeutically-minded um, research volunteer. And just the whole process of doing this kind of pilgrimage in to come in twice to kind of work on this um, kind of rite of passage. So... Um, Oh yeah, so you know, I, I think uh, the FDA would be totally open to to changing the scheduling of psilocybin if there's good evidence out there. I mean, psilocybin isn't abused on the street, you know. Um, there's some other safety studies that have been done, so I think it's a possibility. We have to demonstrate how it can be done safely and effectively. You know, and it's, it's clearly not for everybody, but psilocybin. Yeah, so there's some people have these ideas that maybe there'd have to be so the question is, hey, it seems like you can't, this wouldn't be a medication you can just prescribe and take home with you and take by yourself. Yeah, that's a very astute observation. So there's some, I mean, I've heard some people conceptualize this concept of a treatment center where someone would go in for a session, and this would be with somebody who has a special training or expertise in facilitating the psychedelic experience. Maybe that would be an MD, maybe not, right? And then afterwards, you know, there'd be integration kind of through therapy or whatever kind of spiritual work they're doing. So it, it's not a very, it, 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 one thing about, I think, psychedelics, you know, it kind of defies um, the Western paradigm of medicine, you know, so we have, to, we have to rethink a lot of things. There's also some folks who feel like, hey, these things shouldn't be in the hands of physicians. They're really more spiritual aids and really belong in the hands of um, kind of spiritual leaders, such, and that's how it is in other societies, you know. Can you describe um, what some of the interventions or the guides or the support staff were, what issues arose, did the subject request their intervention, did they okay. intervene on their own? So this question is, hey, what, what came up sitting for the subjects? So we haven't had to intervene at all for anything, okay? All we've had to do is occasionally when we have to go to the bathroom, remind them, please take your time standing up, knock if you need us. There has, there's been no agitation, there's been no paranoia, um, one subject at one point during a check and said, whoa, this is coming on really intense. I didn't realize it could be this rocky. I'm a little fearful. And Charlie said, hey, you know, it can be a little intense in the beginning. It's fine. If you need to, check back in in five minutes. We kind of then changed the music to a little bit more gentle music. She went back in for the rest of her session. And that was just verbalized to us. So there's really virtually very little dialogue between Minimal dialogue. Minimal dialogue during that actual experience. And that's kind of based on 
the work that Groff did, Hanke saying, hey, let's let this medicine uh, do its own work. And one more quick question. Did, uh, did any of the participants report no alteration in, in uh, consciousness? Or yeah, you know, I haven't looked through all the that, that, a, that, that altered um, states of consciousness scale, but, the, you know, the one subject, that, there's two subjects that was very, everybody was not sure which one was which. I wouldn't say they were very altered, you know, versus some subjects were quite altered during the check-ins. They would say, well, you know, the, I can see some colors, this and that. The other thing is there's some people who believe by putting on the eye shades and listening to the music, there's less incidence of the kind of um, sensual kind of um, phenomena, and that allows for more of the kind of psychological benefit. That's another reason to keep the eye shades on and just use internal stimuli. Um, versus being out here and things like that. So that's a that's that's a way of affecting set and setting. You know, often folks who have these bad experiences on psychedelics, it's like, you know, they're buying a drug they don't even know what it is from a drug dealer at two o'clock in the morning in the in a back alley. They take it, they don't know the onset of action. Next thing you know, they're trying to find their car, and there's all this. I mean, it's a horrific experience when you you have an altered level of consciousness. So I mean, it's it's really that influential. Um, with it. So realistically, that's why we really make sure people are comfortable with us, with the hospital. And there is really, they're quite comfortable in the setting. So, so it makes our job really kind of easy. The hardest thing for us is recruiting patients. Well, it, yeah, so his, his question is, hey, you know, um, did the double blinding fail because of this? I'm not actually sure because, you know, it takes some time for the psilocybin to have its effect anyhow with, you know, all these other things we're talking about. Again, I'm not sure if it means a failure, I think maybe it doesn't fit the paradigm of a placebo-controlled study. Now, I think, um, you know, in, at the Hopkins study, they actually used Ritalin as the placebo. And they, <laughs> and they told people they were getting either, like, one of, like, six drugs. You know, either psilocybin or Ritalin, DM, I don't remember what it was. So they really did this elaborate uh, method to kind of keep the blind. And then they even did these interviews with the sitter and the patient, having them report, did they think this was active session or placebo session? And they were so off base on it. So they kind of really did this huge kind of elaborate way to kind of keep it blind or at least show that it was blind. But it's, to me, I think the effect of the medicine is still there either way. You know? And the other thing is we're looking at acute measures of anxiety and pain too. We're kind of hoping some of that will separate out. You know, so. It's like a challenging thing. It's, yeah. It's, you're going to ask them later what they feel and if they know what medication they got. Right, no, of course. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. The other thing, this is a fe this is also a feasibility study. Right. You know, so that's, you know, we're not going for an indication. You know, just showing, it's really kind of a, a, a you know, it's a stage one feasibility study. If I just add one thing, if I remember right, I think the Johns Hopkins people, I think with the Ridley, it was like over 50% of the people with just the Ridley had a mystical experience. Mm -hmm. like oh, they had some on the scales? It was, I, I forget how high the number went, but I remember being jaw-dropping figures. I'm wondering about movement. Because my experience in working with people on psychedelics is uh, the ones who don't physically move around have a bad time. From its experience, kind of sitting with people having bad trips, you know, movement's important to like work out things. Yeah, I think that's a really good point for someone who's agitated, you know, who needs to move. But we're preparing these folks that this is what's going to happen. You know, we're going to be laying in this bed, you know, they've seen the bed before, with the eye shades, you know, with the music, we're right here all the time. And there was one person who actually had quite a lot of psychedelic experiences who really 
kept pulling on the eye shades, wanted to look out the window, wanted to do a lot of those that distracting kind of thing. And she took a lot more redirection to stay um, with the process, which she finally did. So, um, how long did you wait between crossing people over and getting the crossover? Yeah, you know, my opinion, there really is no residual psychedelic effect beyond a day or two. I mean, that's kind of like where I'm looking at it, you know. Um, certainly no, okay. you know. So I think it's either two or three weeks is what we're doing. Right. I, I don't, not with psilocybin. But I don't in terms of integrating into one's life or sort of the longer term, more profound. Yeah, that's going to be very hard to argue what, what is like that. You know, again, that's not one of our outcome measures, so I don't think that's important. But that, I mean, that, I think about that myself kind of in the study. You know, ideally there'd be matched controls, right? But that we just felt it wasn't ethical to ask people to come in for a placebo at this stage in their life. That's why everyone is serving as their own placebo. So I think you, that's the downside. You know, yeah, that will help with recruitment too, of course. And yeah, sure. There, people are coming in thinking that they may get something that can help them. You know, yeah. But your intervention probably would help them. Well, I don't know. We've never done it that way. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, we actually, the FDA allowed us to relax the criteria from terminal to advanced, okay. which generally means a, a, a note from their oncologist saying, you know, advanced cancer. There's though some argument about terminal meaning 12 months or not. There's many folks who are beyond treatment who live who aren't, don't have a cancer that is that acute. So for example, several folks we've treated with ovarian cancer who eventually probably will succumb to fluid overload. Um, and so basically the hypothesis is that this therapy would increase their general well-being. Help with anxiety associated with that diagnosis, kind of. What were the prescriptions that contraindicated? Well, it depends on the psychedelic, but certainly I think you're warranted to avoid MAOI inhibitors with any psychedelic that has MAOI activity. The most prime of that would be ayahuasca, which is a, a kind of a fine beverage from the Amazon or um, DMT compounds, you know. I also think people with cardiac disease should avoid MDMA. Those are the two two biggest ones. You know? I just have one thing, and that um, kind of touches on what the gentleman over there said about um, the sort of legal issues and what are the sort of future directions you think these kind of studies are headed toward? Well, I mean, I think this could be beneficial for anybody getting a diagnosis of cancer. I mean, the irony is, you know, we're more likely to be allowed to do research on folks who are, you know, beyond treatment. That's this kind of strange um, value in our medical research system, you know. Um, hopefully, you know, we can demonstrate this is very safe, and then we could treat anybody just for the existential concern of, <coughs> what am I going to do? What does this mean about my life? How does this reorganize me? So I'd like to look at, you know, any kind of anxiety you know, associated with a kind of a life change. You know, still ruling out, you know, lifelong access one anxiety disorders, you know, with the idea of, you know, this kind of situational um, thing. And cancer is such kind of a heavy diagnosis, even today, though it means so many different things to different people. You know, it's really ubiquitous. Which words vital signs change? So generally with psilocybin, there's a slight increase in heart rate and a slight increase in blood pressure at about hour one or hour two. So we're looking at that. Also, I didn't put it in, in, in the slide. Everybody is getting a cardiac monitoring um, for the duration of it. There hasn't been anything, you know, on there. So that's generally a slight bump. You know, one thing we have noticed when we're just kind of watching the vitals is you don't get that bump with the niacin. You know, but some people don't get a bump with the psilocybin. So. Oh, the question, our patients on IVs? Yeah, there's no IVs. 
yeah, there's no IV. And there hasn't been any intervention necessary for any of any of these folks who are really, I should say, quite medically frail, you know. Um, by the way. Yes, yeah, so the question is how to recruit. It's been a long time, I and mean, we started this, this study was open for recruitment in 2004 when I was a um, third year resident. And I'm flying down there this weekend to help finishing up right now. So, um, you know, it's been a lot of word of mouth. Unfortunately, we could only take English speakers for this study, so that majority of the patients kind of on the psych CNL service and receiving um, kind of their oncology treatment at Harbor are, are Latinos. That, that wiped out a lot of folks. Um, and um, there really wasn't that much openness among, uh, I think, oncologists in the area, you know, to the study. Most of it, I think, was being open to allow us the time to explain to them what this might offer their patients, you know, everyone just being so busy and things like that. So, you know, um, two subjects have been referred by two other different subjects. Um, one subject I met on CNL. Actually, I, was, I wasn't on CNL, but one of the other residents knew that I was on CNL was a woman who just got diagnosed with advanced um, uh, breast cancer. She diagnosed the pathological fracture of her hip, and she had heard about the study somewhere, had no idea about the cancer, and just so she wanted to do it. And then other people just uh, clinical, you know, clinical trial with the website. Shared um, the one person was referred from another um, psilocybin study. Oh, by the way, she was really hoping that it would help with the OCD too not just the cancer and the anxiety when she was coming up. That really was her primary motivation getting to the study. So it's just been really, really, um, you know, slow. There's been some people who didn't make it because they passed away before we got them in. There's been some people who didn't want to go off their narcotics. There was one person who, when they saw Harbor UCLA, this county hospital, was like, there's no way I'm admitting myself into there. I mean, <laughs> just looking at it, so, yeah. I think if it wasn't, you know, end-stage cancer, just any cancer, I think it'd be a lot easier to recruit or even folks who have recovered from cancer. The other thing that makes it hard is we can't have any cardiac disease, any significant uh, organ involvement, and they have to have advanced cancer originally for the first three years with less than one year to live. So how do you get somebody who's just about to die from an advanced disease who is totally medically stable? So it's a bit of a <laughs> catch-22 in the beginning. So this, this last two years have done a much better job recruiting. And also, they removed hypertension. Hypertension was a rule out, and we got that changed to treated hypertension. So, yeah, I would love to do that. I speak Spanish, you know. So, it would require all the whole team to speak Spanish, though. This isn't something <coughs> you can do kind of halfway with them. <coughs> I mean, it would push my Spanish skills. I've done psychotherapy in Spanish, but not your, really <coughs> adapt. <laughs> your instruments also aren't all available right. in Spanish translation. Yes, but I think that altered state of consciousness was re was actually translated from German to English. So couldn't we just get that German to <laughs> Spanish? One I mean, that's a German instrument, right? So your <coughs> translation is yeah. a little dicey. But it can be done. Yeah, you'd, you'd have to get the psilocybin from the Black Forest or something. Right. Great. Okay, so well, let's thank, uh, thank Fritz again for... You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. So uh, there was our little peek into what is going on today in some of the more advanced hospitals and medical centers in the U.S. 
While there uh, still may not be hundreds of psychedelic research projects taking place, the logjam has at least been broken. Uh, human research studies are taking place at Harbor UCLA, Johns Hopkins uh, with the Mithoffers in South Carolina, Francisco Moreno in New Mexico, and uh, several others who are in various stages of uh, psychedelic research. The overall effort, of course, is uh, still nowhere close to the number of active projects there were when the uh, prison industrial complex declared war on these substances, but at least it's a start once again. And uh, my hat is off to Preet and all the other professional researchers who are willing to risk their careers to uh, push this research back uh, to the preeminent position it deserves. One thing I uh, want to be sure that you caught is the fact that what Preet was talking about here when he mentioned the importance of a facilitator is that this was all in the context of using psilocybin uh, in psychotherapy. I'm only talking for myself here, uh, but when using this sacred medicine for personal spiritual growth and insight, I'm still in uh, Terrence McKenna's corner where he recommends taking a high dose alone in silent darkness. However, I I don't subscribe to the silent part uh, because I like music during my solo experiences. But in a clinical setting, I I think that if you spend some time reading the old reports of the early research that was done, uh, then it will be clear just how important a trained and skilled therapist can be when someone is trying to uh, work through what may seem to them to be unsolvable problems. And I probably uh, should also mention that uh, Preet has been doing this work for longer than he took credit for. (laughs) Because uh, even though he says a couple of times that the study began in 2004, I can tell you for sure that it began in 2003 and uh, and Preet was right there from the very first participant experience. Which, uh, now that I think of it, uh, may not have actually taken place till early 2004. But that's a, a trivial detail, right? Anyway, uh, this study, uh, along with uh, Dr. Charlie Grobe, has been getting a lot of uh, publicity lately. And uh, I'll put, put a link to uh, some of those stories along with the program notes for this podcast on our Notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. Let's see, there was one other thing I wanted to mention. Uh, oh, yeah. There was uh, some discussion in Preet's Grand Rounds about uh, the government at one time giving psychedelic substances to people without their consent. I guess I need to get busy and do an interview with uh, Jim Ketchum about this pretty soon and uh, put it all up on record. Uh, but there were two government projects involving psychedelics uh, back in the 50s and 60s. One was run by the military where uh, everyone gave their consent before participating. And Dr. James Ketchum, uh, who ran that program, has uh, written an excellent history about it. And uh, Jim is a good friend of Sasha Shulgin's, by the way. And uh, when we met at Burning Man last year, he agreed to do an interview for the salon. So uh, I guess it's about time I took him up on his offer. The other government program, though, was the shady one. It was uh, run by the CIA and was called MK Ultra. And if you're interested in that one, uh, Wikipedia is a good place to begin. Now, uh, so that I don't have to close this podcast after talking about something negative, uh, let me pass along some news to those of you fortunate enough to uh, go to Burning Man this year. As you know, I'm not going to uh, be able to make it myself, but uh, even so, the fever has uh, now caught me. (laughs) So uh, the night before last, I was at this party up in the hills, and uh, besides some old friends like uh, Mateo and Cactus Phil, I uh, saw some of my longtime but uh, young friends like Violet. 
And Violet is the wonderful young woman who organized Brain Village at Burning Man for several years, and it was uh, thanks to her that the Palenque Norte lectures stayed alive. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, Violet married one of my favorite visionary artists, Michael Brown. And I think there's two Michael Brown visionary artists out there. Uh, not sure about that, but anyhow, uh, Michael is here in the local area. And uh, together they've uh, received an art grant from the Burning Man organization uh, for a major installation on the playa. And it's going to be called McLightenment. <laughs> That's uh, M-C-L-I-G-H-T-E-N-M-E-N-T. Uh, and uh, you'll find it on your way out to the man from Center Camp. Uh, and if you want to see what it's uh, going to look like uh, right now, uh, go to McLightenment.com and see their conception of the final piece. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is to uh, see if some of you will uh, have your pictures taken in front of it and uh, send them to me to post on the Salon blog. That way, uh, those of us who can't make it this year can at least feel connected with the uh, mutual thread of this art. And if you happen to see Michael and Violet while you're out there, uh, well, please tell them that Lorenzo sends his love. Well, that's about it for today. Uh, but before I go, I want to uh, mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the uh, Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org, and that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>